All right, we're going to uh, do another Bible study type of thing tonight. Um, instead of having a specific verse or passage to look at, we're going to be looking at several passages. So uh, I hope you got your Bibles handy. If you don't, there's one in the pew right in front of you, so you don't have an excuse. Especially most of you, but where most of y'all are sitting, it's literally right in front of you. So, so all you gotta do is reach out and grab it. It's the blue, it's the black one, not the red one. Okay, confused, uh, trying to use the red one. Um, but we're we're gonna do we're gonna do some study, and we're gonna ask the question: What does it actually take for us to live out our vision? What is it gonna take for us to be able to do what we believe God is calling us to do? Uh, we've said that the vision church is to be God's family, adopted by faith in Jesus Christ, belonging together through the Spirit and love, making disciples of all nations, beginning right in Prattville. So if we're going to do that, if we're going to live that out, if we're going to be God's family in Prattville, adopted by faith, belonging together, making disciples, what is it going to take from us? And in some ways, this is going to take things that we are, but we need to be more so. And in other ways, it's going to be things that we aren't quite as much of that we need to become. God is calling us to be more than just who we are, but that's not divorced from who we are. I believe that he's calling us to be who we are in many cases to a greater extent. So what is it going to take? What, what is it going to look like if we're accomplishing this vision, what characteristics are we going to have? So tonight, I want to turn your attention to six core characteristics. These are things that I believe, and maybe I've forgotten something, or maybe I'm expressing it a little bit differently than than what you might picture is what we need. But this, um, these characteristics, I believe, are central to our mission. So on the back of your bulletin this morning, uh, the lower half is is the notes for tonight. So if you are one of those fill in the blank types, this is one. This is one. This one's for you. Okay. So so you can fill in the blanks. If you're not one of the fill in the blank types, that's okay. Um, God 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 doesn't hate type B personalities. He's he's not up there saying, oh, you got to get all your blanks. But um, but if that is helpful for you, there it is. We begin with what I think is going to be the core of the core. It is said that if you, if you really want to be the kind of Christian that God wants you to be, that you will naturally be a person of prayer. And I don't know how much naturally is involved in it. I don't know how much of it is discipline and how much of it is natural. And maybe as you grow, it becomes more natural. But I do know that fervent prayer has to be the central characteristic of our church. If we are going to do what God wants us to do, the place to start is fervent prayer. Paul is talking to the Colossian church. He writes to the, this is late in Paul's ministry, almost if not the last book that he wrote. And so he's writing this to this church. He's also writing a letter to a church down the road in Laodicea. Um, and we don't have that letter, but we do have this one. And I imagine Paul probably said something similar to Laodicea that he said to the church in Colossae. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I thought that was kind of interesting. For Paul to say to continue steadfastly in prayer, 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Normally we think of thanksgiving as you've already gotten it and now you're thanking God for it. But in this case, it's almost a thanksgiving that looks ahead to what God is going to give. We are begging God. We are asking God. We're continuing in prayer to God, asking him for whatever it is, whether it's healing for someone or whether it's for someone to come to know Christ or whether it's for God to do a work in our hearts, for us to grow in maturity, whatever it happens to be. We're asking God, praying to God over and over and over again, continuing like the widow that just keeps coming to the judge every single day, every single day. And finally, the judge says, I better give her what she wants or she's going to keep nagging me. I don't think we nag God with our prayers. But I do think perseverance is something that matters to God. And so we are to be fervent in prayer, being watchful with, with an attitude of thanksgiving that knows that God will answer the prayer. Look, you have two, two options, okay? God says yes. Yeah, all right. God said yes. God says no, and what he works is better than what you wanted anyway. You're, you come out a winner either way. It doesn't matter whether it's yes or no. It's always God's best. And so we know thanksgiving in our hearts that we can approach God with whatever the petition is and know that he is going to do the right thing and that we, well, we get the benefit of God being God. And so fervent prayer is where it begins. He's writing, when he writes to the Thessalonian church, which is much earlier in his ministry, he puts it just straight up. I love Paul because sometimes he just tells it. First uh, Thessalonians 5.17. This is a hard one, okay? Ready? Pray without ceasing, okay? That's almost like Jesus wept. I mean, it's just straight to the point, man. He just, he just tells you straight up. Pray without ceasing. It's a good verse to memorize because isn't it often that we forget to pray? Isn't it often that things are going well and so we're sitting back relaxing and, and we're maybe getting a little too confident in ourselves? growing a little bit big-headed, thinking of ourselves a little bit more highly than we ought to? Isn't it easy to step back and say, oh, look at what I've done? What does God warn the Israelites about before they enter the promised land? He warns them in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, now you got to be careful about this because you're going to enter this land and you're going to forget about me. Don't do that. Don't forget about me. Don't forget where these blessings come from. You're going to forget that you walked into this place flowing with milk and honey, with houses you did not build, crops you did not plant. You're going to forget my blessings, and you're going to turn away from me and worship false gods. And when that happens, the hammer comes down. Don't forget me in the good times. But also, don't forget them in the bad times. Things are starting to go bad. What do we do? We panic. Oh, no. No, we don't naturally pray, do we? But that's what we should do. We think, oh no, what am I going to do? No, this isn't working. And we, we try harder or we try to come up with creative solutions. Maybe, you know, it's like, a, it's like a football coach that the game's not going right. And so you just start throwing trick plays hoping something will stick. It's like you're just, you're just throwing stuff at the wall hoping something sticks there. But that's not what we are to do. We are to pray without ceasing being fervent in prayer. Why? Why is that crucial to us? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we can't do it. We cannot reach Prattville on our own power. We cannot live God's vision of this church by our own means. 
We cannot design the right program. We cannot foster the right attitude and morale. We cannot conjure up holiness with our own effort. It takes God's help. In fact, we help God help us. We help Him because He's the primary actor. And so we are to be fervent in prayer because it demonstrates to God an attitude that says, I can't do this, God, I need you. We are proud of our country and of the declaration of independence. We need to make a declaration of dependence on the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to direct us, help us, to shape us. Sometimes we don't even know how we are to pray. We pray stuff and it sounds like gobbledygook in God's ears. Because we don't even know what we're praying about. Not to mention how to pray for it. And all the while, God's Holy Spirit is praying for us. We need God so much. And an attitude, a a posture of fervent prayer taps us in to that. James is talking about troubles in the church, people getting sick, and what to do. And he tells them, Pray for each other. Have have them come before the church and let the elders anoint them with oil. Pray for them because the prayer of faith will save. The prayer of faith has such a power. In fact, verse 16 in James 5, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I don't remember how the King James puts it, but I think it refers to the effectual prayer. I'm sorry? The effectual fervent prayer. Maybe that's where I got this word fervent from. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, I think. That's how it puts. Do, Do you see how this isn't just a 12 step program to a bigger church? This is about changing who we are. It's about taking us from people who rely on ourselves day by day and turning us to people that rely on God. It's taking us from I can do it to he can do it. It's taking us from trusting in us to trusting in him. Now, we know on the big things we can't handle it, but on the little things we often try to. But that posture of fervent prayer calls us back to dependence on God in everything we do. And we are not going to come anywhere close to doing God's work unless we're dependent on Him. That's why the first characteristic is fervent prayer. By the way, we have a promise. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. We have a promise from God. And when we pray like that, that he'll hear us. You ever feel like your prayer hits the sea and falls back down? I felt like that sometimes. God says, no, no, I hear your prayer. Now, usually when I feel like that, I'm really screwing up. <laughs> it's usually my fault. But there's sometimes where I just need to remember that it actually does make it to the address that I'm sending it. That confirmation receipt from God that says, I heard you. I'm answering you. I think sometimes we all need to remember that. Fervent prayer. The second one is something that at first glance sounds like, it it sounds like something that only really applies to certain people, but I think it applies to all of us and it's accurate doctrine. So we have fervent prayer, the basis of how we live in relationship with God. 
And then we have accurate doctrine. This, this is more about the way that we present the gospel. And I believe that this is not just an issue for teachers. It's not just an issue for the preacher. It's not just an issue for someone who's in an official capacity teaching or guiding people. This is someone, this is for parents and grandparents. This is for all of us. That in everything we do and say that we are accurate in our doctrine of God, that we are showing people what God really is like, teaching well. Now, that doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean that all of you have to start teaching. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is you are teaching in some kind of capacity in your life. So what are you saying about God? What does your life demonstrate? Is it accurate? Does it show God for who he really is? Or are you double speaking? where you're saying something and then living something else, and they don't quite match up. Accurate doctrine. Ephesians 4.25 uh, is, is, puts this really well. He says, Therefore, putting away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Notice, notice what he connects this to. He says, You put away falsehood, and you speak the truth, because we belong together, because we're members of the same body, because we're part of this body of Christ, we are to speak the truth and put away falsehood. What that does not mean, what that does not mean is that we have to yell and shout anybody down that's saying something that's wrong or that we think is wrong. It's not what that means, but it does mean we better speak truth. You see, there is a place for truth. And, and what's funny is you never find people telling the truth that are perfectly acceptable with censoring everybody else. Now, you got some people that might be wrong that are okay. Yes. But you never have someone that's telling the truth that says, you know what, I don't believe enough in the truth to let it have a fair hearing, so I want to stack the deck and get rid of everybody else. It's always liars They want to stack the deck against others because the truth will win. And even when the deck is stacked against it, the truth will win. That's why it's all the more important that what we say be true. So when we're talking to people about God and we're saying things like, God helps those who help themselves. Maybe I have a bad Bible, but that's not in my Bible. (laughs) He helps those who cannot help themselves who have absolutely no way of helping themselves. That's who God helps. Now, yes, God honors our effort, but we can't do what we need to do without him. We tell the truth, and we tell the truth because he's God of truth. Zechariah Zechariah 8, he's telling these people, he has been issuing judgments against his people, and he turns and he says, but now no longer am I going to act on that. Once I punish you, once I, once I put you into exile, once I do that kind of thing to punish your sins, but now I'm turning away from that because punishment has been taken care of. Now I'm turning away from punishment and toward reviving you. And he says, these are the things you should do. In light of me stopping the punishment, in light of me having dealt with your sin, now here's how you ought to live. And he says, speak the truth another the very first thing he says render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace do you realize that if we would just tell the truth half the junk we deal with we wouldn't have to deal with 
Now, that doesn't just mean to others. That also means to ourselves. What's the first step? Any, anybody been through AA or know someone who's been through AA? Anybody ever heard of AA? <laughs> What's the first step of the 12 steps? Admit you have a problem. Jesus said it this way, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, if you're not willing to face the truth, if you're not willing to come face to face with the truth, there's, there's no hope for you. If you really want to see a difference in your life and in the lives of people around you, speak truth. Now, Jesus was full of grace and truth, so you have to balance those. It can't just be hard truth all the time. He's got some folks for that. They're called prophets, right? That's what the prophets do. It's hard truth. It's locusts and honey wearing animal skins out in the desert, and, and all they give you is unfiltered truth, okay? We can't, we can't always do that. We have to speak the truth in love. But you know, we speak truth because God speaks truth. That's why he gives us the command in Exodus chapter 20. One of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What is he saying? He's saying the truth matters. And it matters to God because Numbers 23, 19 tells us, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If we are going to be the people that God wants us to be, we have to be willing to stand on the truth even when the truth goes against what we used to think. When we come face to face with truth in the scripture and it blindsides us because we thought something else was right, we need to be willing to get rid of our wrong preconceptions and adopt the truth of the scripture. We need to understand, not stand over. And that means that when we encounter something that's wrong, we speak against it. But we first make sure we're on solid. How many times have you heard something? Something's not right about that. And you, you don't know why. You can't explain it. You can't point to chapter and verse. You can't, you can't work out all the details of why that's wrong. But you just know that's not right. That's God's Holy Spirit talking to you. Truth matters because we have a God of truth. We should be people of truth. Accurate doctrine. The third characteristic, balance out that accurate doctrine like i said you got to have grace and truth like christ did meaningful relationships earn us the ability to speak sometimes what needs to be spoken and sometimes needs to be spoken a little bit harshly we need to have the the bandwidth for the message we can't just distribute the message out broadcast it over the airways and expect it to work we need to carry it through a bandwidth. You connect to the internet, you connect through either a wireless connection or a wired connection. But when it gets to that router, it's not wireless anymore. It becomes wired. That router plugs in. That modem plugs in. Whether you're using a cable modem or a router or whatever, whatever the connection is, it plugs into a wire and that wire carries the message. Sometimes it's a fiber optic line. Sometimes it's a coax line, like a cable, cable television line. Sometimes it's, it's an Ethernet line. Sometimes it's a T1 line if you're at a place with a, a, a huge Internet connection that needs a lot of bandwidth. You'll have a T1 line running into that, to that building. But regardless, it's still running on something. 
There is still a physical conduit by which you can connect to the internet and get data, transmit data back and forth. We have to have a conduit whereby we can deliver truth to people in ways that matter. And that is through relationship. Relationship is what gives us the opportunity to speak truth into people's lives. Yes, we can stand out on a street corner and yell. Anybody anybody saved by someone standing on a corner just preaching out loud? Any of y'all saved that way? I don't care. Praise God if you were. I wasn't. I was saved through relationships. Y'all? How many of you were led to Christ by someone you knew? How many of you were led to Christ not by someone you knew, but because someone you knew invited you to hear the gospel? They, they invited you to a revival or a church service, something like that. Yeah. If it's not direct, it's indirect. But it always involves a relationship of some kind. Those meaningful relationships. You're telling your story now, aren't you? <laughs> I hear him whisper and I hear him say revival preachers like, yep, he's okay. Sometimes. Uh, meaningful relationships provide us the conduit for speaking the gospel into people's lives. Now, sometimes we get those relationships and, and, and they develop quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time to get to that place. Sometimes it takes relatively quick to get there and a long time to get through all the barriers so that they will accept Christ. But those meaningful relationships give us a way to do that, to share the gospel with people. 80% of people say they would be willing to have a spiritual conversation if someone they knew asked them. Four out of five. They'd be willing to talk about spiritual things, regardless of whether it's Christianity or something else. They're hungry for truth, y'all. And by building good relationships, meaningful relationships, not just, hey, Bob, how you doing? Not water cooler talk kind of relationships. Relationships that go deeper. Relationships where uh, I had a friend that was in the military and he said he, 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 came, he came around, he was addressing the troops and, and he was asking one troop, uh, one, one guy in, in, in this regiment um, about his family. You know, how, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? How many kids do you have? How, are they and he looked and he shook his head he said he said sir this is the fourth time you've asked me those questions this guy was after he got over the initial shock he was really sad because it was the fourth time that relationship was just there was no depth to it and he committed he said he said from committed to finding out the answers to those questions and never having to ask them in of the same person to making his relationships mean something. First Peter one twenty two. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, these two go hand in hand. You don't get love without truth. I was reading a book um, last week and the author at the end of the book, there's two authors, and the one that's writing the last chapter talks about why he thinks so many people will go to the secular isms as opposed to accepting Christianity. And he said, oftentimes it's because we've been hurt by those who have the truth. We learn that the truth is something to be feared instead of loved. 
But then he made an interesting turn. He said, what if it's not just something to love, but you can't really love without there being something personal? So what if rather than... Isn't something to be loved, but someone to be loved. Someone who loves you in spite of knowing about you. Someone who loves you in spite of the ability, the power that they could have over you. Who loves you so much that they're willing to disagree with you in love and willing to speak a truth to you that demonstrates that love. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And our relationship with Him gives us the means by which we can relate with others, by which we can love our brothers sincerely. Ephesians 4.32 says famously, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Meaningful relationships, not just paper, not just easygoing. Relationships that matter. Our world is desperate for those. Fourth thing, intentional discipleship. You don't drift into evangelism. You don't drift into discipleship. I mean... First part of that word is disciple. That comes from the word discipline, right? Actually, disciple, uh, here's a fun fact for you, Nicole. Next time you're in math class, disciple and mathematics have the same root. Mathetes is disciple in Greek. It's what is learned. It's the learner. It's the, it's, it's, it's that idea that someone needs to be taught something. And so someone else who knows it teaches it to them. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given me. Therefore, make disciples of all nations. You've heard me say, I think that what he's saying is, Go make disciples. Get off your can and get to work. Go make disciples. Don't just make them of Jews. Make them of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. God has given us a commission to make disciples of the nations. We're going to talk about that more next Sunday. But it's got to be intentional. It's got to be something that you do. And in order to do that, you have to first be a disciple. Paul told Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. It's something that we have to do day in and day out of our lives, every day, every week, every month, every year. We be disciples, and then we take that discipleship and we pass it on and invest it in someone else. We don't give it to them and say, now it's yours. You're stuck with it. It's not a timeshare, okay? You're not selling them the timeshare and then you're finally free of it. No, we make disciples and we do it intentionally. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. The fifth one, loving generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 tells us, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, it's interesting. This is one of those that, um, again, sounds like it means one thing, but it really applies to a lot more of life. Kind of accurate doctrine. It sounds like it just applies when you're putting money in the plate, right? We're supposed to be cheerful givers, so you need to give a little more. Hint, hint, wink, wink, you know, kind of thing. That's not, that's not what that verse means. 
That verse means that we are to be careful givers. So maybe that careful gift doesn't necessarily have to be money. The next time that your husband or your wife asks you to do something, do you serve them carefully? <laughs> Thank you for that accurate doctrine. Um, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> you know why it says God loves a cheerful giver? Because he is a cheerful giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't give money. He gave himself. He gave his son. Now, if that's true of God, then we need to act like daddy and be cheerful givers too. You know, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to dare y'all. But I'd almost rather see half of the offering and twice of the cheerfulness. Almost. They'll cut your offering half. Come here, skipping down the aisle. You know, don't do that. What I'm saying, though, whether it's money or whether it's time or whether it's, it's our, our gifts or talents, whatever it happens to be that we have available to give, if we gave rightly, carefully, jumping at the opportunity to serve one another and to serve our God, I think we'd begin to get what, what, that, what John 3.16 really means. Not just the things that God has done for us, but the difference that it makes in us to be cheerful givers. Psalm 112.9 also says this. He has distributed freely. I love that. It's almost as like, please take it. Please take it. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. It is a... It is a point of pride. And in God, it's okay because he deserves it. It's a point of pride with God to say, look what I have given. He smiles. He, he loves the chance to give. And we should be the same way too. Giving in such a way, because love gives. Y'all ever notice that? <laughs> love gives and gives and gives and gives. It doesn't matter how hungry that kid is. You keep making food for him. It doesn't matter how much they need. You do whatever it takes to provide. It doesn't matter the crazy hoops and the long hours you have to go through to get the money that you need to provide whatever it is they're asking for. You do what it takes. And maybe you don't do that with every single thing because they don't need a new pair of Air Jordans. I get that. But you make sure they have shoes. Might be Walmart brand shoes, but they're shoes. You make sure they have what they need because you love them. You save up for months and months and months to buy a ring because you love her. Right, man? And then a little while down the road, you save up more and you buy her another ring because now her fingers have gotten too big for the first ring. Right? Or you buy another ring and you tell her, I should have gotten you this ring in the first time, but I didn't have enough money. So now I'm going to up, up you. I'm going to, I'm going to upgrade you. I'm sorry. I was just thinking of like, like upgrading your fries to a large. It, <laughs> something like that. It's just, the point is that when you love someone, no price is too high to pay. It doesn't matter what it takes. You love them. So you give. And you find ways to give more. By the way, we live in a world that just wants to take. You really want give. Not just at Christmas time. Give. Give cheerfully. Walk in. If, if you have somewhere where you are, walk into your place of work sometime around Thanksgiving or so. All get and excited because of the Christmas gifts you get to give to somebody else. 
most of y'all don't work anymore. Um, I don't, I don't know who you can be giddy around. Maybe, <laughs> maybe your spouse or somebody. I don't know. Walk in here. I don't care. Take joy in the opportunity to give to those you love. Lastly, all right, so we have fervent prayer, we have accurate doctrine, we have meaningful relationships, intentional discipleship, loving generosity. <sighs> this one's going to be the hardest one. I said some of these are going to require us to change. This one's going to require us to change a little bit. Youthful zeal. Now, I say that because we're all old people, practically. And no, no, I, I make noises when I get up, okay? I'm getting there. The thing that's so cool about youth is they have so much energy. The thing that's bad about youth is that they have no direction. <laughs> it's like they don't know what to do with it. most youth. Nicole's different. Nicole's not like that. But most youth have so much energy and so much passion and have no clue where to put it. And so it doesn't matter. It's just whatever the first thing comes along, they're all about it. Right? I remember being a youth. I'd go to a concert. When I came back from that concert, it didn't matter who the artist was. They were my favorite artist. It didn't matter. Didn't matter if I hadn't heard of them 10 minutes before the concert. All that matters is now I've heard them and now I'm excited about it, right? And a few weeks later would go by and it wasn't that big of a deal anymore, right? I had a lot of passion but didn't know where to put it. Didn't know how to apply it. We need to take that same kind of passion and put it into working for Christ. I don't mean the... I've heard people say we ought to be hooping and hollering in church every time someone gets saved. I don't care if you're hooping and hollering. I do care that we're working to make sure more are saved. That we're working with urgency and vitality that brings life into what we do. I do care that we are zealous in our work. I work with a guy that runs circles around other people. He is crazy. I mean, he literally runs around other people. He doesn't just walk through. He doesn't say, excuse me. Like He'll run around them. And if you've ever been in a kitchen, you know that's not a good idea. They, t they say our shoes are slip resistant. Very much. I used to think they weren't at all, and then I accidentally wore a pair of tennis shoes to work one day. And boy, that a difference. They do help, but not quite all the way. But it's that kind of zeal. It's that kind of running to get something, to get back, to keep working. It's that kind of zeal, that, that doing everything with urgency, of picking things up quickly, of moving things quickly, of doing what you've got to do fast and in a hurry to get it out, to get it right, and do it every time you can, every chance you can. It's, it's that attitude that says, I've got to get someone else. It's not just how many do I need to meet my quota, it's how many can I get. It's not uh, what do I have to do to do bare minimum. It's how many can I do? How many people can I tell about Christ? How much, how much effort can I put into this? Where can I find another dollar to put in the plate? What can I do that I'm not doing now that I can do to continue to grow in my faith? Maybe it's reading one more verse in a quiet time. Or one more chapter to get through your Bible reading a little bit faster. You know, if you read 15 chapters a day, you could read the Bible in 90 days. I heard that. I was stunned. I, was, I just started a one-year plan. This guy made me look like <laughs> lazy. My point is, well, Paul makes the point in Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Now, there's two words that don't go together. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Once again... 
we need to do this because God does this. When I was studying, I looked up this word zeal in the scripture and just to see what other scriptures use that word zeal. And I was amazed. One of them I found was in Isaiah 59. He says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Sound familiar? He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Talking about God preparing for war, preparing to defend his people. He puts on zeal like a cloak. I was even more amazed when I saw this other passage. It's a passage you know. It's a passage you've heard. Maybe you've heard a lot of times. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord shall do this. If you really want to summarize the characteristics, it's be like God. That's what we need, church. We need to be more and more like God. Fervent in our prayer. Just as fervently praying on the sides of mountains. Accurate in our doctrine telling people the truth of God's gospel, no matter what the cost, in every aspect of our lives. Meaningful relationships that give us the content for teaching that truth and reaching, gospel, reaching out to the lost with the gospel. Intentional discipleship that makes the most of every opportunity to help them know God better and to become disciples who make disciples. Loving generosity that doesn't care what the cost is, that doesn't care how much effort it takes on our part, but we do it because we love them, because God first loved us. And God loves them with that kind of love we are too. And a youthful zeal, maybe we make noises when we stand up, but when we stand, we get to work. I believe these are the characteristics we need to have if we're going to live out our vision. And so I ask you to join me Praying that these things will not just be words on a page of a bulletin spoken one September night. Traits that define us as a church. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for you do. The love with which you have loved us is so incredible that we cannot begin to thank you enough for it, not to mention return the favor. But God, in our lives, we, we want to be these kinds of people, people who are fervent in prayer, accurate in doctrine, who build meaningful relationships, who engage in intentional discipleship, display loving generosity, and do everything with a youthful zeal that cannot be extinguished. Father, I pray that this would be who we are for your glory. Help us. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.